0: It is really good to be here with you this morning. Um, I know a lot of us love this time of year. Fall is nice anyway, and then Balloon Fiesta is a wonderful time, and I do enjoy Balloon Fiesta, but even more so I enjoy the fact that it's kind of the unofficial Albuquerque homecoming week, so a lot of people come back for that time, and it's really good to see different people who are here uh, throughout this week back with their church family here. So uh, let me welcome all of you back and try to come back more than once a year. We would appreciate that as well. As we get ready to talk about another chapter in God's story, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. Father, you have blessed us with your word, with the Bible. And Father, you've blessed us with the fact that you want to be known and that you've revealed yourself in the Bible. And Father, you've blessed us with the fact that You have allowed us to be a part of your story, your ongoing story. And, Father, we see you at work throughout your story from thousands of years ago until now. And, Father, we just are in awe of who you are and what you have done and what you continue to do. And, Father, we ask that you'll work through us, that you'll work powerfully through us, that we might bring your Son, Jesus Christ, to all those who are around us. Father, we pray this through his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So as I mentioned today, we will continue our focus on stories. We'll continue to explore God's story as found in the Bible, and we'll continue to look at how our personal and individual stories find their meaning and purpose in God's story. Not surprisingly, we started out this series at the beginning, with creation. And there we saw the world as God always intended for it to be. It was paradise, And there we saw life the way that God always intended for it to be. It was paradise. It was paradise free from guilt, free from shame. And it was paradise built on perfect relationships. But tragically, we then watched paradise come crashing down as Adam and Eve listened to Satan's lies. And they rebelled against God. And then because of their sin, they had to leave the garden behind. And they entered a world that was very far from paradise. And we saw that the perfect relationships of the garden were replaced by a world where creation was hostile to mankind and where mankind was hostile to creation and where humans were hostile to each other. And we saw Cain kill his brother and we saw things continue to deteriorate until God's very good creation had been replaced by continually evil. And then we saw God in his sorrow Sent a great purging flood. And we saw the hope that came with a fresh start with the good and righteous man, Noah. But that hope was short-lived. And the people moved further and further away from paradise. And they moved further and further away from their God. And then we saw God once more choose to act for the benefit of his people. This time it was through Abraham. He was a man who was called out from the pagans to accept God's missional call to be a light to the nations by bringing God's blessings to all the people. And in Abraham's relationship with God, we learn that we can be flawed and yet still faithful to our God. And we can be faithful to our God's call to bring the light to our dark world. And we also learn that our God is always faithful to his promises. And God promised that if Abraham would answer his call, he would give him innumerable descendants. And he promised that he would give him a land of his own. And he promised that he would bless Abraham. And he promised that he would make Abraham's name great. And he also promised that he would bless all the nations, all the nations of the world through Abraham. And that's where we stopped in God's story last week. With these promises that God made to Abraham, we ended with Abraham living in covenant relationship with his God but with numerous descendants and with a land of his own and with a great name and with blessings and with all the nations being blessed through Abraham, promises that still were yet to be fulfilled, promises that would find their fulfillment somewhere, somewhere in the future of God's story. So this morning, before we look at the next chapter of God's story, the chapter that begins with Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, nearly 200 years after these promises were made, Let's see how God has been working to keep his promises to Abraham during those years. As we remember, the promise of innumerable descendants seemed particularly problematic. Problematic because Abraham and his wife hadn't been able to have any children, and they were both well beyond childbearing age. And we saw that Abraham, with encouragement from Sarah, fathered a son named Ishmael with their servant Hagar. But God had other plans, and miraculously, Isaac was born to Sarah. And from Abraham's son, Ishmael, came the numerous tribes of the Ishmaelites. And from Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, came sons, twin sons, Esau, who was also known as Edom, and Jacob, who would be renamed by God as Israel. And from Esau came the Edomites, and from Jacob came the Israelites, the Edomites and the Israelites, and here with Jacob, with Isaac, we see God's promise taking shape because Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. He had 12 sons, and those 12 sons led to the 12 tribes of the nation Israel, and so as Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, arrives on the scene of God's story, Abraham's descendants aren't innumerable but they're certainly getting there. And how about the promise of a land to call his own? Well, Abraham's descendants are living in the promised land. They're living in Canaan, but they don't yet possess it. They're still foreigners in a land that God promised would be their possession. And how about the, the uh, promise that Abraham would be blessed and his descendants would be blessed? That is definitely happening. God has been faithful to that promise God has even enriched them when they've taken paths being led by fear instead of by faith. They've even been blessed materially in those situations. And Abraham's family has amassed significant wealth. And how about the great name promise? As we turn the page to Joseph, is Abraham's name great? And I think the fair answer is not yet. Abraham isn't anonymous for sure, but the greatness of Abraham's name is yet to come. And finally, is God blessing the nations through Abraham? And to answer that question, I think it's time that we introduce Joseph to God's story. I'm sure most of us here are very familiar with Joseph's story. Joseph was just one of 12 sons, but he was Jacob's favorite son because he was Rachel's son. And Jacob wasn't shy about showing favoritism to Joseph, and Joseph wasn't shy about sharing the fact that he believed that he was not only favored by his father, but he was favored by God. And the inevitable sibling jealousy led to plans to kill Joseph. And those plans were rerouted with a sale of Joseph into slavery and with a deception that left Jacob believing that his favorite son, Joseph, was indeed dead. And then our story shifts to Egypt, where Joseph's favored status with God is confirmed. And he is eventually placed as second in command in all of Egypt. And he's tasked with preparing for a severe drought and a severe famine in the land. It's a drought and a famine that's predicted to be only seven good and plentiful years away. Predicted by Joseph as he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And the drought came as promised and... Egypt, and only Egypt, is prepared. And they're only prepared because under Joseph's leadership, they've been storing up food for the seven good years. And so we see that starving people come from all the nations of the world to Egypt, desperately seeking food. And God blesses all of the nations, just as he promised through Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And as all those nations are coming to Egypt for food, we're two years into the famine, and we have to be wondering, what's happening to Jacob? What's happening to Joseph's family? And by extension, we're wondering how God's promises are looking to that family, to Abraham's descendants. And then, very much on cue, one significant group makes their way to Egypt. It's Jacob's sons. It's Joseph's brothers. And they're also desperately seeking food. And there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of intrigue. But in the midst of that, Joseph forgives his brothers. And he forgives them with these words from Genesis 45, verse 5. Joseph said to his brothers, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your life by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. So we see that God's promises are still alive. They're still alive because he has been faithful to Abraham through his great-grandson, Joseph. Abraham's descendants will live, and so will the promise of countless descendants. Joseph's story affirms for us that God keeps his promises. In Joseph's story, we see God working powerfully and faithfully to keep his promise to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And Joseph's story is also a very important transitional story. It's an important transitional story because it explains for us how Abraham's people came to Egypt. And they came to Egypt under the protection of Joseph's great name in Egypt. And Joseph's story sets the stage for the defining event of Jewish identity. It sets the stage for the Exodus story. It sets the stage for the story of how Abraham's people left Egypt. How they left Egypt when they were no longer protected by Joseph's great name. So let's look at the next chapter in God's story. Exodus chapter one and verse six. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were pressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. Well, obviously, a lot has happened since Joseph welcomed his family to Egypt. And as so often happens with the passing of time, the heroes of old have been forgotten, and Joseph's name is no longer great in Egypt. And since Joseph has been forgotten, the exceedingly numerous, the most likely hundreds of thousands of Israelites are no longer viewed with favor in Egypt. Instead, they're viewed as a threat to the Egyptians. And their reaction to that threat is to enslave the Israelites and to put them under extremely harsh conditions. But the Egyptian plan backfires. The Israelites continue to grow in numbers, and as they grow in numbers, the Egyptians decide that the best thing to do is to treat them even more severely. But as Egyptian abuse increased, so did the Israelite population. They become more and more numerous. And as their numbers grew, so did the Egyptian paranoia. It grew to the point that the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, responded by ordering that all of the baby boys, all of the Israelite baby boys be killed, be thrown into the Nile River where they would drown. And that's the environment that greeted the next pivotal figure in God's story, Moses. That's the environment that greeted Moses at his birth. He was born into slavery and oppression. He was born into systematic infanticide, murder of male children. So when Moses was born, he was marked for death. That was his destiny. But God had other plans because he had Moses marked for life. And he had Moses marked for light, and he had Moses marked to be his instrument to set his people free. So Moses' life begins with three months of hiding, and then moves to a basket in the river where he's found and adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. And Moses spends the first 40 years of his life receiving an Egyptian education, He's a privileged member of the king's household, and there Moses learned about Egypt from the inside. He learned about its customs. He learned about its religion. He learned about its law. He learned about its government, all from the inside as a member of Pharaoh's household. But apparently Moses didn't lose touch of who he really was. He's really a son of Abraham. And one day Moses sees an Egyptian slave master mistreating another son of Abraham. And Moses reacts in anger by killing the Egyptian and hiding his body. But even though he hid the body, his crime wasn't hidden. Pharaoh finds out about it and decides once more that he should try to kill Moses. And Moses leaves Egypt. And he leaves Egypt for another 40 years. And he spends these 40 years of his life in Midian tending sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. At least that's what it looks like is going on, that he's just a sheep herder. But in reality, those middle 40 years of Moses' life aren't about tending sheep at all. They're about God disciplining Moses. They're about God preparing Moses in the wilderness. God is working on Moses in fact, the first 80 years of Moses' life have all, been all about God preparing Moses for the next great act in God's story, the exodus of his people from Egypt. So after 40 years of education and then 40 years of discipline, Moses is then called by I Am. He's called by God, and he's called for a rescue mission. Exodus chapter 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. It's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Burning bushes and bare feet and God's voice. And a mission. A mission to rescue God's people from slavery. And when God reveals himself and he reveals his mission to Moses, he also reveals himself to us. In this story, we learn much more about the great I Am. And a very important part of God's story is revealed right here when Abraham asks God for his name. What is your name, God? And God replies, my name is I Am. And when God does that, he boldly announces that he's the God who always was. And he announces that he's the God who always will be. And he announces to Moses that he is still in the promise keeping business. He hasn't forgotten his promises to Abraham and he hasn't forgotten his people. God has always been faithful and he will always be faithful. So when God announces his rescue mission, he demonstrates that he is a God who responds to people who are trapped. He's a God who responds to people who are hopeless. He's a God who responds to people who are enslaved. And he shows that I am hears the cry of broken people. And he shows that his mission is to set people free from their slavery. So Moses hears all of these announcements, and his bare feet become cold feet. And he proceeds to point out all of the potential flaws in God's plan, especially the flaw of selecting him, the flaw of selecting Moses as the one for this mission. But God will have none of it. And Moses and his, and his brother Aaron end up back in Egypt. And there they meet with the Israelite elders, and then they confront Pharaoh. They confront Pharaoh with God's demand that his people be set free. Pharaoh wasn't impressed. And then God set in motion a series of events that left no question at all that I am, is the God who always has been and always will be. First it was snakes. Then it was blood. And then there were frogs followed by gnats and flies. And then it was the Egyptian livestock followed by boils and hail. And then it was locusts followed by three days of complete darkness. And still, Pharaoh stubbornly refused God's demand to set his people free. And that brings this chapter of God's story to the Passover story. And the Passover story reveals so much about God's faithfulness. It reveals so much about God's faithfulness that it's to be told over and over again, to generation after generation The Passover story is a story of death, and it's a story of deliverance. Death to every firstborn male of the Egyptians, and deliverance of the Israelites. It's also a story of resistance and submission. Resistance by Pharaoh to God's will and submission to God's will by the Israelites, Submission when they followed God's instructions and sacrificed their lambs and put blood on their door frames and ate his prescribed meal. Let me read from Genesis chapter 12 and 13. Don't try to follow along because I'm not reading everything in those two chapters. Just listen. This is how you are to eat the Passover meal. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand... Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. And all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. And Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. This observance is for you a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord will be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt and with his mighty hand. So you must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. The Passover story. It's a story that tells about an act of God's grace that left no doubt that Israel's deliverance was by God's mighty hand. Deliverance wasn't by Israel's might. It wasn't by anything that they did, but only by the power of I am, the power of God. And the Passover story is a story that's told over and over again. It's a perpetual declaration of Israel's identity. It's told generation after generation as an announcement by Israel that we are the people who have been redeemed by God. It's the Passover story. But the Passover story isn't just Israel's story. See, the Passover story is also our story. And the Passover story becomes our story through Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus appeared on earth in the tradition of Moses, he was in the tradition of Moses because he was sent by God on a rescue mission. When Jesus appeared on earth, he demonstrated that God, he demonstrated that I am is still in the promise-keeping business. And Jesus' appearance on earth demonstrates that God continues to respond to people like you and me. He continues to respond to people who are trapped, people who are hopeless, people like you and me who are enslaved. And Jesus' appearance demonstrates that God continues to hear the cry of his people, of the broken. And it demonstrates that Jesus' mission is to set the trapped. His mission is to set the hopeless. It's to set the enslaved. It's to set the broken free. That's Jesus' story. And when Jesus tells everybody in John chapter 8 that he existed even before Abraham, at that point, Jesus identifies himself with the I Am of Israel, with the God of Israel. He identifies himself as God. He identifies himself as one who has always been and always will be. And when we stood before God... And when we acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God, and then when we participated in his death, burial, and resurrection in baptism, we identified ourselves with Jesus. And we identified ourselves with the I Am of Israel. When we did that, we became his people. We became the people rescued from the slavery of sin. We became part of the Christian story. We became part of the story that fulfills the Jewish story. It fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham. It fulfills that promise because Jesus, a son of Abraham, Jesus is God's ultimate blessing to the nations. Jesus is God's ultimate blessing to all people. Because we are the nations. We are the people. And we've been blessed By Jesus. And since we have been blessed by Jesus, we as children of Abraham are to take His blessings, take His light to all the world, to all the nations. And the Christian story is also a Passover story. It's a Passover story of deliverance by God's grace. Because the Christian story is a story of the I am. It's the story of God who, through the blood of Jesus, has passed over our guilt, and he's redeemed us with his mighty hand, not through any power of our own. And so we remember our Passover story. In fact, we tell our Passover story over and over again, and we tell our Passover story from generation to generation. We tell that story at At this table, we tell our Passover story in our communion observance. Because when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, it's our perpetual declaration of our identity. We declare that we, as Christians, are the people redeemed by God, we are the people redeemed by I am. And so this morning, as we come to an end, I just want us to end our time together in worship to God. I want us to end in worship to I am. So please don't take this as an opportunity to head to the exits. Please stay with the body of Christ here so that we can worship God, so we can worship I am together. We're going to worship the God who always was. We're going to worship the God who always will be. Take this as an opportunity to worship the God who sent his son to rescue you. We're going to sing a song. I want you to hear the words. And then I want you to make those words your own words. Listen to the words. You are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depth of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Your majesty enthroned above. And I stand, I stand in awe of you. I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due. I stand in awe of you. Let's all stand together in awe of our God and sing.